so this is a this is a monumental time and it may seem ironic that that God had established the nation set it up given them a land taken them out of Egypt gotten them all the way to the promised land and and, and done miracle after miracle provided for them uh, settled them in the nation given them a, a straightforward law to live by given them his presence all these things got it done and now after Israel's been settled, now they're going to be dispersed back into slavery again. Now, God's justice at this point is necessary. And it might seem uh, harsh, it might seem unfair, but, but Israel had been so rebellious and it provoked God so much that God at this point has to exert his justice and his correction. But we know that God's never unfair, right? If anything, he is abundantly gracious. And, and as I used to tell my kids, uh, we won't have to discipline you. We won't have to punish you if you do what we say. Parents, you ever use that one? Like, you, you can avoid all the punishment, all the discipline you want. It's up to you. And Israel had been warned over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, almost to the point of, of it being ad infinitum. I and mean, it was just ridiculous how many times God warned them. And Israel just continued to resist this call to a new life and this call to trust in him. Now, if you look at verse 7, and we're not going to read that, but if you look at verse 7, it said that he had given them freedom. He kind of reminds them in verses uh, 7 to 20 of all the things he had done. He had given them freedom. He had brought them out of oppression, out of slavery, which they had had no escape from. He brought them into the land. It's a, it's a beautiful, clear picture of salvation that God brought us out of bondage, that God gave us a Savior, a Deliverer, that he did miraculous things to get us to the place where we need to be, a picture of Christ and, and Passover and all those connections that we know and we've studied before. Now, in the same way, the Lord didn't rescue Israel just to transfer them back to slavery, right? In the same way that God didn't send Christ to reconcile the world unto himself, so we trust Christ, we're given a new life, we're given the Holy Spirit, and then we're supposed to just go back to our old life. The Bible talks about that. So Israel was going against the grain here. God had delivered them to give them a new life, but they rejected his grace, and they went back and served other gods, and they went back to their old life, openly worshiping these false gods instead of the one true God. So, you see in verse 13, the Lord sends prophets. And the prophets warn the people about the destructive path that they're on. And he tells them, turn back from evil. Turn back to me. Turn back to the Lord. But not only would the people not listen, but it says in the text that they stiffen their necks. You know what a stiff, you know what it's like when you have a stiff neck, right? It's, it's miserable. You're kind of like this. You're, you know, you turn and you look really weird because it's just, it's just a pain. You're just, you're just annoyed. There's no movement whatsoever. You don't have a free range of motion. Well, they stiffened their necks. They stiffened their hearts. They were hard-hearted, coming to the place of not even really believing in the Lord. That's how, how resistant they were. And their hearts were so hardened that they were unmoved, despite the repeated warnings, despite the, the repeated instructions. It really didn't move the needle of their heart one millimeter, which is amazing when you think about all that God had done and all the, all the truth that he had given them, all the miracles that he had done. So we see in verse 15, the third thing that God did, he reminded them of the law. 
And this was both as a, as a warning about sin and teaching them about righteousness. But again, Israel rejects it. Again, Israel turns their heart away from it, and they sold themselves to evil. They embraced idolatry. They, they continued to do everything they could to not obey God, not trust God, and instead to, to kind of, as the text says, pursue vanity, everything self-centered, everything that doesn't pertain to life and godliness. That, that's what Israel pursued. So they made a conscious and intentional decision to sin. They hit all the buttons of rebellion. They, they did all the things they could do to specifically defy God's law and God's grace. So we get to verses 22 and 23 and we read this. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. That was the first king of Israel after the divide, which he did. Jeroboam was a miserable, evil king. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all the servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Now three times in the text, and we know repetition is important, right? Three times in the text, God uses this phrase about Israel that he removed them from his sight. That tells you how deep their sin was. Because we know God's gracious, right? And we know he's patient and kind and long-suffering. And God is willing to, to forgive even the most vile sinner, which is all of us. But, but here, they're so unwilling to trust and so resistant and so defiant that God says, I'm going to cast you away from my sight. The word in the text literally means to throw them away. Now, how many know that's never a good position to be in? You never want to be cast away by God. You say, well, God's gracious and God's willing to forgive. Yes, he is, but he's also willing to discipline out of his holiness. He's not going to be a fool. He's not going to be abused. He's not going to have his grace just trampled on. He will deal with it, just like any good parent, and he's the ultimate parent, but any good parent, when they see defiance in their children, right, when they see that first seed of rebellion, when they see that attitude where you go, excuse me? <laughs> you ever done that one? Excuse me? What did you just say to me? The child's like, or they just put their hands on their hips, right? Like, I'm taking you on. I'm five, but I'm taking you on. God at some point has to go, no, that's not happening. And yes, I'm gracious, and yes, I love you more than you can imagine. But there will be times when I have to cast you out of my sight, when I have to, 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 to put you over here because you're not doing the right thing. And God doesn't want to do that. That's not God's desire. He's not willing that it should perish, right? That, that all should come to repentance. And the Bible's full of this beautiful imagery about the eyes of God, about how he loves to pay close attention to us. Let me give you a couple of verses. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye on you. Psalm 33, 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. I'm going to say amen to that. 2 Corinthians 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those who heart, whose heart is completely his. 
In other words, the Lord will completely uphold and protect and strengthen anyone whose heart is fully given to him. But like Israel, if we're, if we're passive, if we return back to the old self, if we keep going back and forth to, to, to our own selfish disobedience, eventually God says, I'm going to remove you from my sight. Till you get your heart right, till you come back to me, you're, you're kind of going to be out of, my, out of my range because I'm looking around for people whose heart is completely mine. I, I'll wander the earth. I'll look around. I want to see, hey, Rhodes, Rhodes's, Rhodes's heart is completely given to me. Oh, I'm going to bless that. Or, or Paul's rebellious. Paul continues to walk in sin. Paul continues to defy me. Paul continues to put his hands on his hips and say, no, Lord, you're not going to do that in my life. You think God's going to suffer that? You think he's going to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to bless you for that. I'm going to continue to honor you because you're defiant to me. So Israel's done. We see that in the last verse that we read. They're taken away by the Assyrians. And in their place, the king of Assyria, and we'll read this in a minute starting verse 24. King of Assyria brings in exiled citizens from five different nations. In other words, he has to repopulate the land because Israel's gone. That whole northern part of the kingdom from Jerusalem up is, is pretty much emptied out. And God says, uh, the, the king of Assyria says, well, let's deal with that. Let's send some of our own people back in. So all these captives they've had from other nations, they send them back in to occupy the land. And they begin to uh, settle it for Assyria up in Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. Now look at what happens, verse 24. King of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cutha and from Ava and from Hamath and of Sephoth, Sephoth how do we pronounce that? Sepharvaim. Say amen for the pastor pronouncing that word. And he settled them in the cities of Samaria in the place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them who killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you've carried into exile in the cities of Samaria don't know the custom of the God of the land. So he sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Now, at the beginning, it says in verse 24 that these new citizens don't fear the Lord. Instead, they just don't think about it. They're indifferent. They don't care. They've got their own gods that they're coming in with. And they certainly, at this point, know Israel's history. Okay, the history of these nations was not a secret. They knew about Abraham. They knew about Moses. They knew about the Red Sea. That had been told to everybody. They knew about Joshua. They knew about David. They knew about the temple. And they certainly had heard about Jehovah, that, that this God of Israel had personally helped his people. And for some reason now, he wasn't helping them. They probably figured out because they had rebelled. So, so there should be some sense of, of maybe trepidation, at the very least, some measure of respect. But instead, they go in. They're careless, they're thoughtless, they don't want to know about God, they're just occupying a new address. So in response to that kind of contempt, look at it, it's, it's surprising when we read the text a little bit, the Lord sends lions. 
And these lions kill these foreigners who are occupying Israel. Now you say, well, that's pretty drastic. Like, that's a shocking little thing that, that I didn't expect this morning on a nice March day. I didn't expect for God to send lions to kill people who had occupied this land. But, but here's the point of that. This was still the land set aside for God's people. God didn't want to remove them. He didn't want to have them go into captivity. He didn't want the relationship to be like this. But this land was Israel's. From Genesis 12 on, it belonged in Israel. And whether they're there or not, nobody and nothing is going to change that. The strife over Israel today, the embassy, all that kind of stuff, that has its fundamental roots in the fact that this land belongs to Israel. It's permanently theirs. And that leads us, I want to give you three points this morning, three, three truths that I think are very important. This is the first truth. The Lord is jealous about what is his. The Lord is jealous about what is his. Even though he's angry at Israel, even though he's having to discipline them for their hard-heartedness, he's still defensive of them. He's still defensive of the lamb. He's still taking care of them, even though they're in captivity. And he's not going to tolerate foreign nations coming in and ignoring the God of Israel. And if they're going to disrespect him and, and, and not fear him, then he's going to get their attention. This is a side of the Lord I don't think we talk about often enough because I think we're, we're nervous in these politically correct times that God has to be soft and loving and gracious and kind and merciful and, and not judging anybody and not, not holding anybody accountable. And, you know, there's some subjectivity to the word and we've got to be relevant, all these things. Listen, this is the God of Israel and God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is a righteous God. He has a right to be righteous because he's holy. He has a right to be righteous because we are sinners. And he is just. And he is kind. And he's merciful. And he's gracious. Jesus proves that. But he also will call us to account. And if we think that this is, we're just going to skate by in these times and just kind of anything goes, I want to tell us we are totally wrong. God will get our attention. He will do things to prompt us to seek him. And that tells us several things about him. One is that he's always drawing people to himself. God is always drawing people to himself. So all people, every person who lives, will learn to trust him and fear him as the only true God. God is always doing that. And the second thing is that he will do what it takes to awaken people's hearts to him. We should live, and this is what it means to fear the Lord, we should live in a constant humility and a constant soberness that God is willing to do what it takes to make sure we're walking with him. And when we start to wander and we start to rebel, we start to get proud, that's when he will allow difficulty. That's when he will allow trial. That's when he will allow pain in order to break us of that pride because he knows how spiritually destructive our pride is. So whether it's his people, Israel being taken into captivity, whether it's these enemies who are occupying, he will work to show truth. He will work to show us the way that leads to life. Now, on the flip side of that, he's also very jealous and protective of us. He doesn't allow people to mess with his children. 
He doesn't want us to feel ever, because this is not true, that, that we're alone, that we're kind of out there, that we have no help, that, that we're just having to get by and, and make it through the next day. No, he says, I'm your strength and your shield. In fact, I looked at a lot of the verses this week throughout the Bible that, that describe this. Psalms described him as our defense, our rock of refuge, our fortress, our stronghold, our deliverer, and our salvation. Hebrews 13 says he'll never leave us, abandon, or forsake us. Isaiah says our names are engraved in the palms of his hands. Romans says nothing can separate us from his love. Jesus says I'll send the Spirit to seal you, indwell you, empower you, comfort you until you stand face to face in my presence that I have provided and secured you in forever through the blood of Christ. So when we are his children, whom he's redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus' own blood. And when we face opposition, and we face temptation, or we're needing wisdom or help, is there any doubt that God is going to defend us and protect us? I'll be your defense. I'll be your shield. I'll be your stronghold. I'll be your fortress. I'll be your power. I'll indwell you. I'll help you. I'll comfort you. I'll come alongside you. I will secure you. You're sealed in my blood, Christ's blood. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. Everything you need, I will do for you. So we come in a crisis. Well, I don't know. Where is the Lord? Where do you think he is? He's right by you. Turn to him. Seek him. Ask him for help. He's not wandered away. And if you're walking with him, he is right there. Because if you're walking with him, the Holy Spirit's filling you. We get into trouble where we're not walking with him. Where is God? Well, he can fill you completely if you walk with him. But if you're turned away from him, if you're walking in sin, guess what? His eyes are, I don't know, let them be for a while. They want to do their own thing. This also raises the question, are we consistently seeking his help? Are we consistently seeking his word? Are we relying on him only as our strength and our sufficiency? Or do we only go to him when it's convenient? Listen now, do we only go to him when we really need help? See, that's what the exiles did. Look back at the text. When the lions come and kill some of them, they write back to the Assyrian king and they say, hey, hey, king, you sent us here. We don't know anything about this place. We don't know anything about the God of this land, and we need some help. So look at what the king says, verse 27, 28. He says, take one of their priests whom you carried away into exile. Let him go and live there. Teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests who they carried into exile came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. In other words, hey, we're, we're clueless. Seems like there's a problem. We've offended the God of this land, so we need to know what the score is. What, what, what's happening here? So the king says, well, get one of the priests and get the priest to come tell you what it is, to, to teach you about the Lord. How many know that when we're not in fellowship with the Lord, it's always great to get back to the Word? When you're wandering, when you're lost, oh, I haven't been in the Word for a month, Pastor, I don't know, it's just, I've been so busy. Listen, listen, that's never going to get you in a good place. 
Fellowship with the Lord requires getting to his word. Do you know what a blessing and a gift it is to be able to hold his word in our hands this morning? How many people are being sacrificed around the world because they just want to have a Bible? I could take my pick this morning. I could go on my study and pick, I don't know, 15, 20 Bibles. We've got free Bibles we give away. You don't have a Bible, we'll give you a Bible. The Bible's so accessible that we, we kind of take it for granted. Well, I don't know. Just throw it down. I'll get to it later. I don't know. I got a lot of stuff going on. Listen, this is a precious, precious word. And we have to have the word to teach us. Personal study, how important is that? Bible studies that we have during the week. Sermons, you can listen to any pastor. Like, you can listen to guys from the 1800s now. It's remarkable what technology's done. Listen to other pastors. Listen to people that are going to feed you the word of God. When you're driving, listen to a sermon. Doesn't have to be me, listen to somebody else. But get fed by the word. Because if we're really serious about knowing what the Lord is clearly saying, then we have to not neglect this word. We have so many resources. And first and foremost, though, even with all the resources, we need to get back to the purity of the word. Be very careful about, about becoming too reliant on the other resources. I want you to read those books I've given you each month, but I don't want you to read them in the neglect of the Word. If you need to read one thing, read the Word. Those books are just what men have written. Come back to the purity of the Word. And you say, well, Paul, I don't want to admit it, but I don't really understand it. Well, then let me very gently ask you, have you really taken the time to try? Have you, have you really sat with the word? Have you really prayed, Lord, give me clarity and understanding? God will never not answer that prayer. I know that's a double negative. God will always answer the prayer. Lord, give me clarity and understanding as I study your word. And not just a sentence or two, not our daily bread, not our utmost for his highest. These are all good things. I'm talking about sitting with the word for 30 minutes. 45 minutes, an hour. Lord, I, uh, cleanse me. I want to I come to your word this morning. I want to understand it. Holy Spirit, teach me. I want to know what this says. You don't need formal training for that. You don't need seminary for that. But the question is, have you really sat with the word and digested it? Not a, not a fast food approach, right? Uh, you know, when you eat fast food, right? You consume a meal in like 10 minutes as you're driving. You're like, there's no way if I'm sitting in a restaurant, I would have eaten that that fast. But it's like, I got to get a fry, shoving four or five fries in your mouth, right? You know what I'm talking. Come on, you guys eat fast food. Don't act like you don't. <laughs> Treat the word of God like luxury dining. Like, like a price-fixed meal with 17 courses. Not a value meal from Culver's. Right? Cram it in my mouth. I got to rush. 10 minutes. Okay, I get a little word. You know, no. Sit with it. Light the candles, so to speak. Right? Put the tablecloth down. Get a notebook. Get a pen. Ask questions of the text. Go back over it. Come back later. What were the questions? God, you've given me new. Research the word meanings. Read through the text four or five times and then pray for more understanding. Listen, when you do that, I promise you, I promise you, you'll understand it. 
and then say, Lord, I need some personal application out of that. It'll already have come out of your study, but, but, but Holy Spirit, now teach me, what do I need to change because of that? And the Spirit will reveal truth. He'll instruct you and convict you and strengthen you. We need to rely on him to do all the things we've just talked about as we study the word. And then we're called to yield ourselves to the word, right? It's not just enough to know what it says. Now you've got to act on it. So are we emptied of self? Are, are we aggressively resisting temptation? Are we running back to our old self? What are we just saying? I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough, right? That Nothing compares to that. Nothing compares to the presence of the Lord. Nothing compares to the satisfaction of the Lord. But, but yet we run back to the old things thinking that it's going to make me happy. It's like when you're trying to eat healthy and you've eaten salad and you're eating right and you feel better and there's fruits and vegetables and then you have some sugar and you go, ugh. I ate a bunch of sugar one day last week. I'm finding that sugar makes me feel lousy and it makes me tired. About two hours after I eat sugar, I'm, you know, in the chair. Not good to do if you're driving. I used to think when I was coming back from taking Jake to Wheaton or whatever, well, I'll just get a candy bar because I'll get that boost. The problem is once the candy bar hits in about 15 minutes later, then an hour later when you're heading through Kenosha, like, your car is drifting, right? When we fill our hearts with what's unhealthy, it stunts our growth. So are we running back to those old nasty things or are we doing what's right? Now, we see this, and the reason I tell you that is because that's what's proven with these exiles. They know the Lord is the one who sent the lions. They know they need to understand him, at the very least logically, and probably to worship him as God. But as mankind often does, they go back to their old way of life. So look at verse 29. But, okay, so, so the, the priest comes in, teaches them how to fear the Lord. But every nation, that's speaking of all the nations representing these exiles, every nation still made gods of its own. They put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nurgal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharites burned their children in the fire of Adoralamach and Anamalek and whatever their names are, the gods of Sepharvayim. They also feared the Lord. Okay, this is weird. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. High places is always idol worship, Okay. So they fear the Lord, but they're putting priests in the temples to the idols. Verse 33, they feared the Lord, okay, but they served their own gods according to the customs of the nations from whom they had been carried away in exile. The text says that every nation represented still made their own gods. They still went to the high places and worshipped these false gods, now, like so many things, I, as I was studying this this week, I thought, this is so illogical. It doesn't make any sense. What makes the God I created more powerful than the God you created? What makes my, my idol better than your idol? 
Look at the lists I, I mangled as I read verses 30 to 31. None of these gods is still worshipped, right? None of these gods is even known to this day. And I, and I looked at it. They're either idols of goats or dogs or donkeys or roosters or they're worshipping the sun or they're worshipping the planet Mars. You know, all things that have a personal investment in our lives every day, right? That, that rooster really, really, you know, that, that changes my life. Do you know there are people in California, i got to have an aside here, we got to laugh a little bit. There are people in California that are now having chickens as their emotional, what do you call them? Support animals. They're spending $400 to buy a chicken, and they're putting them in $10,000 little huts. And they're, and they're feeding them. They've got personal chefs. I'm not joking. I read this last night. This is in, guess where? California, right? So the chicken has a personal chef. Now, keep that in your mind. I don't think that was a coincidence. I read that. Because when I talk about kids in a minute, I want you to remember that. So now the chicken's my emotional support animal, and I'm giving it personal chef food and, and, and dressing it, literally, and, and giving it a $10,000 home because now that's the God I'm going to worship. These names, look at them. Sukkoth Benoth and Nibhaz and Tartek. Those are just substitute names for wealth and power and fame, and sports, and vices, anything else that man worships instead of the Lord. Now notice in verse 31, the two nations even burn their children in the fire of the gods. Now why do we don't maybe see that literally happening every day in our culture? We see it happening practically. Kids are isolated on social media, they're praying, playing in incredibly, I don't think we even know, incredibly violent and sadistic video games that desensitize and devalue human life, and then we're surprised when a kid goes and shoots up his school. There's an increased lack of respect for authority, and I'm not picking on the kids. Please hear me this morning. There's, there's a greater political defiance. There's really anarchy in some of the streets of our nation. And then church attendance among youth is declining. Cutting, depression, suicide are at high levels. You know what that is? That's verses 31 and 32. That's the enemy burning our children. And are we aggressively fighting it or are we giving into it? See, the last two generations of adults have allowed it to happen. And we've exacerbated it with, with selfishness that's led to promiscuity and divorce and the collapse of the family and alcohol abuse and an entertainment mindset about spirituality. And that's caused an increased disinterest in serious study of God's word and a decline in discipleship and spiritual maturity and ministry because we're going to build a $10,000 house to a chicken. But meanwhile, our own kids, we have no idea what they're doing. Now, that's not the kid's fault. It's our fault. And it's no different, honestly. I've been convinced about this and convicted about this. What is happening in our country in 2018, when we are an enlightened, educated, uh, uh, amazingly intelligent society, what's happening is no different 
Then 2 Kings 17.31. We're burning our kids. And if we don't get on top of it, we're going to lose not only a generation, we're going to lose Christianity. Now, that's all because so many people are living a life of duplicity. Working all the angles, living on the edge, trying to balance between two different ways of life if we even see living for Christ as a way of life. And it leads to our second truth. The second truth is there is no middle ground when it comes to fearing the Lord. There's no middle ground when it comes to fearing the Lord. We've said that before. That's not a new truth, but we need to remember it. Notice how the exiles here try to do this. I'm sure they're justifying it as they do. In verse 32, it says, well, they feared the Lord, but, but they also had priests in the high places with the idols. And 33 says they feared the Lord, but, but they were serving their own gods too. In other words, they're just giving spiritual lip service at this point. They're covering their bases so they won't be attacked by the lions again. This is the third truth. I know I put them back to back. The third truth is, and this one's long, fearing the Lord is not about just getting by. Fearing the Lord is not just about getting by. It's about giving him everything. Fearing the Lord's not just about, well, I'll just kind of get through and, and just kind of manage and just kind of do the Christianity thing and, and, and just kind of, I don't know, have my own life and kind of balance it out and work it out. Go to church, you know, give a little bit and, and give a little ministry. And, and you know, I'm part, of, I'm part of it. Read my Bible once in a while and pray a little bit. And, and you know, yeah. Nope, that's not why Christ died. It's not why Christ died. So, so we can just kind of do our thing. See, these exiles, look back at it, they want to know what the Lord's expectations are, but they only want to know what the Lord's expectations are so they can avoid difficulty as opposed to being completely transformed and living for the Lord. And let me ask you, does that describe you? Are you attempting to take a duplicitous middle ground approach to faith and obedience, hoping that'll be enough. Is there a lot of, yeah, I fear the Lord, Paul, but, but you know, I'm not giving that up. Is, is there a constant, uh, there, there's a constant lie, there's a constant temptation to think that we can live that way, but when we live that way, one of two things is happening. Either we're saying that God is just kind of clueless and he's not paying attention, or we're saying that God is so pathetic that he'll be appeased by us kind of placating him and saying, yeah, I'm kind of living for you, Lord, and, and that he'll be satisfied with that. Rather than what God says, deny yourself, deny everybody else, love me so much that you hate other people, and if you're not worthy to walk with me, if you're not, if you're not willing to testify of me, if you're not willing to talk about me, if you're not willing to look like Christ, you are not my disciple. Not just, hey, Paul, just do your best. I know I've saved you. Praise the Lord. Just, just, just you're saved and you're redeemed and you're going to heaven. And, and just kind of just muddle through it. Just kind of get by. Have some good times, some bad times. Just, just you know, just, just placate me. Just, just act the part. Jesus doesn't give that allowance. 
Jesus doesn't give that latitude. He doesn't say, well, just disciples just get by. He said, listen, people are going to reject you. They're going to hate you. They're going to deny you. And disciples, they're even going to put you to death because of me. Now, are you going to stand for me or not? Because this is not a game. This is reality. These people from other nations, they believed that it was possible to claim to fear the Lord while serving other gods. But look back at verse 34. We're about to close. The Lord says, that's not really fearing me. Because when we constantly waver, what does it do? It just makes us spiritually sick. I went on a cruise once. I don't think I've told you guys this story before. I went on a cruise once. I was in college. And my parents had to go. I think my dad had to speak on the cruise or something. They said, why don't you go with us? So I said, okay. So I went on this cruise. Well, we happened to go in January, which apparently is some sort of hurricane season or I don't know, there was some sort of bad storm. So as we're going from Fort Lauderdale to Nassau, we're in 15-foot swells. Well, I don't care how big the cruise boat is. 15-foot swells are not fun. And I'm sitting in the room, and I'm looking out the little porthole, and in one minute, I'll see sky, and I'm like, ah. And the next minute, we would drop, and I'd just see wave. Sky, wave, sky, wave. Should I keep doing it so you're sick for lunch? Sky, <laughs> I had no Dramamine. I was stuck. This is before the days where cruises are like, you know, 96 levels, and they look like a, a floating country. So I'm sitting there, and I don't, I don't really get sick by very much. I was sick as a dog. I, didn't, I just wanted to walk outside of my own body. Sky, wave. <laughs> it's miserable. And I learned a spiritual principle there. The Bible calls it wavering, right? James 1.5. Back and forth, up and down. Peak. Valley, peak, valley. It makes you spiritually sick. Christ didn't come and redeem us. The Holy Spirit doesn't fill us so we can just go up and down and back and forth. Now, this is not hard to figure out. I mean, it's really not. We all relate to that, right? We all know what I'm talking about this morning. So we have to give some honest answers to some very direct questions. Here are the questions. Am I faithfully obeying the word in every way without debate or question? That's not a hard question to answer. It's yes or no. It's not but, wait, I have a reason. Nope, it's yes or no. Is it obvious that I'm walking by the Spirit? Am I really close to the Lord, or is it just kind of some degree of, of proximity? Do I constantly abide in his presence, or, or when I show up, is he kind of surprised, like, you know, the dreams I had in college where I had never gone to class and show up for the final, they're like, who are you? Is that how it is when, when we come to the Lord in prayer, like, oh, it's been a while. Yeah, what is it, a couple months here since I've seen you? Oh, you're coming to me now because you have a problem. Okay, I get it. You're doing the same thing that they did in 2 Kings 17. You're coming to me when you need me. Is my faith confident? Is my character strong?
strong, or is it inconsistent, uncertain, indecisive, undefined, circumstantial, vacillating, and weak? You see, we may be existing in the middle ground, and we're kind of a little bit disconcerted, a little bit uncomfortable with that, but, but we're really not making any effort to abandon our position. But remember, we've studied it many times, the Lord despises the middle ground. He says, it makes me sick. It's like up and down and back and forth. It just makes me want to throw up. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he doesn't fall. So, let's finish. Are, are we listening? Are we trusting? Are our ears open to the Lord's instruction, or are they closed? See, the priest comes in, and he teaches them, and the exiles say, man, that's great. No more lions. Whew. Okay. Well, that's good. Thank you, priest. We've really enjoyed your time, and, and we're glad to know a little bit more about your God, but... Um, you know, now, now we don't really, we got our own gods. Like, it's cool. We just wanted to make sure we were covered and that we're not getting killed. So as long as we're not getting killed, we, we feel like we're good on our own. So we're going to go back to our gods. We're going to worship in the high places. We're going to go to all these idols whose names we can't pronounce that are dogs and donkeys and goats and, and whatever. We're, we're going to go back to them. And, and, and God says, wait a second. You don't know who you're dealing with. I'm the God, and this is in the verses later. We won't read it now. I'm the God that, that all other gods bow down to. I'm the God that brought Israel out of Egypt. I'm the God that, that gave them this land that you're in now, and you need to understand that you need to respect me and trust me. And they say, well, that's great. God, thank you, but we're not going to do that. In fact, look at one more verse. Verse 41. Uh, start in verse 40. However, they didn't listen. They did according to their earlier custom. So while these nations feared the Lord, I think that's tongue-in-cheek, they also served their idols. Their children, likewise, their grandchildren, as their fathers did, and so they do to this day. Their ears were closed. What I don't hear, I'm not responsible for. I don't want to listen. I fear the Lord, do you? Because it seems like part way. Seems like you're still serving your other idols. Well, yeah, but, you know, we're, we're, we're given some honor. And this is repeated from generation to generation to generation. I pray that that is never the description of us. I pray that the Lord can never look at us and go, it's how it's been. Their grandparents, their parents, them, their kids, grandkids, the great grands. I can see it all laid out. They're never going to break the cycle. Listen, if, if, if verse 41 is the cycle of your family, break it right now. Break it right now. I've counseled people over the years, well, my dad abused my mom, and my grandfather abused my grandmother, and, and now I married a guy who is abusing me. I'm like, well, just stop that cycle right now. Uh, well, the alcoholism has always been in my family. Well, it doesn't have to be. Don't teach your kids. They're watching you. Dump out the alcohol. Go home. Dump it out. Don't buy it. Well, I, no. It's very simple. Don't buy it. You see, we, we perpetuate lack of fear. We perpetuate middle ground. We perpetuate 
duplicity. And God says, listen to my word. This is it. Listen to my word. Fear me. Walk with me. Don't go back to the old customs. Live for me.